Our sermon today will be taken from John 14, verse 15 to 31. This is the word of God. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and I will, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the lure of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do, as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Thus says the Lord. We have a special guest preaching for us today. Dr. Mickey Kling has been with us throughout this week. He preached for us last Sunday. Uh, Dr. Mickey Kling did his PhD in New Testament from the University of St. Andrews. He is an author of multiple books on the Gospel of John, including the commentary that we've been using on John's Gospel as we've been going through the series. He was also the professor of New Testament at Byerly University for about 10 years, and now he is the pastor of Hope Evangelical Church in Roscoe, Illinois. Please welcome Dr. Mickey Kling. It is a pleasure to be with you again this morning. We are going to talk about the Spirit, uh, and I'm glad to hear that Reformed churches are willing to do that too, uh, because it's in God's Word. And one of the benefits of preaching expositorily is that, quite simply, God addresses the topics that He wants us to hear about, and we are in what's called the Farewell Discourse. We, we really started that last week, and you will continue this long after I go back to my home church but in this section, John 14, 15, and 16, Jesus makes six key statements. He's describing the nature of life in the new covenant. After he finishes his work, he ascends to the Father in heaven. The Spirit comes down, and he begins to explain what it means to live in the new covenant as we're living in right now and to be disciples of Jesus Christ. 
Last week, if you were here, we talked about the first half of John 14, where Jesus declared himself to be the object and focus of our life as a disciple, where Jesus made that famous statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Here in the second half of John 14, Jesus now talks about the Spirit. And that's what we'll be talking about today, the role, the nature, even the name given to the Spirit in this text, only found in John's writings that are significant regarding his role and his ministry. So we'll talk about that. But before we do, let me uh, open us up in a word of prayer. Father, we come to your word and we want to not sit over it, but sit under it. We want it to form us and rebuke us and challenge us. And with your Spirit's power, conform us to it. So we ask that you would help us to hear this morning from your word. We thank you for your hospitality to invite us in to your church and to share your truth with us just as you share the life of your son and the power of your spirit with us so we ask that we would be receptive and that you would be glorified by our efforts this morning we pray all this in jesus name amen the text that was just read for you john 14 15 to 31 can be broken up into three sections and each of those three sections address an important topic regarding the role of the Spirit and the nature of His ministry. Let me address the first one for you here, uh, verses 15 to 21, and I'm, I'm summarizing what these say in this way. The paraclete, that's the name given to the Spirit, I'll explain in a minute. The paraclete is the presence and the power of God, not only in the world, but also for the church. So think of the Spirit as the presence and the power of God. The text opens with this language of love and obedience. Look at 15, verse 15 with me. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you, and in the ESV, which I'm reading from, which I believe you commonly use, He will give you, it says, another helper. Notice the capital H. That word helper there is paraclete. In the Greek, it's parakletos. So simply transliterated, Greek letters into English, it is paraclete. Now the reason I'm going to use paraclete this morning is because the word parakletos in the Greek can mean several different things. In fact, it's almost impossible to completely define it. At some, in some situations, throughout Greek literature, the word can be translated as comforter. Notice how that speaks to the role of the Spirit who comforts the children of God. At other times, it can be translated as advocate. So think of like a legal role, how the Spirit convicts of sin or judges in the world, which rightly fits the term and the role of the Spirit. In another sense, the term parakletos can be translated as counselor, guiding, directing, leading into all truth, comforting in certain ways. And finally, a fourth translation is helper, assisting. Think of it as empowering. All four of those could be translated for the word parakletos. And usually what translations feel tempted to do, instead of transliterating, is to translate. What I would recommend we do is not necessarily choose any one of those four to be the translation. Quite simply, none of them holistically explain what the parakletos the, the, the paraclete is. 
at some, in some moments, even in the Gospel of John, as Jesus explains the role of the Spirit paraclete, in some moments the Spirit will comfort. In others it will be a helper. In others it will be an advocate or a counselor. So you're going to hear me use the language of paraclete. I'm simply transliterating what the Greek word is so that all four of those categories, which clearly the paraclete functions as, are up and running in our minds. Let me give you a summary of the identity of the paraclete. Who is the paraclete? And what do we know about him? Four things I'll explain. Number one is this paraclete in this moment is still to come. Jesus says he will ask the Father to send the Spirit. He can only come when Jesus departs. For he is coming as a direct consequence of the saving work of Christ without which he could have no place or function. So in this moment, Jesus is saying, he's coming. The paraclete is coming to facilitate and to carry on the ministry for which I came. Another truth about the identity of the paraclete is that the paraclete will have a special relationship to the disciples. Without exception, the functions ascribed to the Spirit are elsewhere in the gospel assigned to Christ. The paraclete will relate to the disciples. He'll dwell and be with them. He will even be the spirit of truth. So notice how Jesus can easily say, it is good for me to go. And also that he's not abandoning his disciples. In essence, with the spirit, with the coming of the spirit, of the paraclete as he's called here, Jesus Christ is magnifying his presence and empowering his disciples in a greater way, in this new covenant way, more than if he himself had remained among them. This is part of God's gift to us as his people in the church. A third fact about the identity of the paraclete is that the paraclete has a unique role in the world regarding the conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. Here the legal or forensic sense, the advocate identity of the paraclete is most visible. The paraclete witnesses to Christ, advocates for the disciples, aiding their witness. If, if, if you've read through the book of Acts, you'll see numerous times where the Spirit was helping them speak bold words in moments of confrontation or comforting them in this legal sense as they were suffering for the sake of Christ. The paraclete is also the one that judges the world of their sin. Some of these truths I'm speaking now will be made explicit in chapters 15 and 16 of John. But I wanted to give you, for the benefit of understanding this new term that's introduced, this identity of the paraclete, the Spirit of God. Finally, a fourth truth about the identity of the paraclete is the title paraclete in this context, and here's my summary, refers to the ministerial office of the Trinitarian God in the world. Notice what, what I read to you just a few minutes ago in verse 16. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another paraclete. Did you see that? Why does it say another? I thought this one was going to be new. Like, why would it say another paraclete if this one is going to be new? It's implying, it's stating that Jesus was the first paraclete. By that, we're given insight then 
into something unique about how God is ministering. In the same way that a church has an office of an elder, the office of an elder that, that individuals fulfill, right? Ordained and assigned by the presbytery to minister the gospel for the people of God, this office of elder grounded in Christ and the biblical writings themselves is an office that many individuals can fill and then be removed from, but can come and fill. God is creating an office of the paraclete through which he manifests his presence and functionally ministers to his people. And both Jesus and the Spirit are participating in this office of the paraclete. Notice how the categories uh, I gave you for paraclete earlier fit Jesus as well. At times he is a comforter. At times, he is legal, like an advocate. At times, he is a counselor. And at times, he is a helper. The paraclete is the spirit, but more than just the spirit, the paraclete is connected to the Trinitarian God. In these verses, we can see how the Son and the Spirit can belong together as God and participate in the same work, the mission of God, and yet be different persons and have different assignments and function. A distinction in person and purpose, yet a unity in function and an equality in essence. What we're bumping into here is the doctrine of the Trinity and the way that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit minister to us in the world. Through the office of the paraclete, the relationship among the Trinity is shared with us by means of the Spirit. For at Jesus' departure, we are given a share in the family relationship with the Father and the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the intimate presence of God with His people. Jesus is not leaving His disciples. The moment He arrived, when we celebrate, as we celebrate the Incarnation, the moment Jesus arrived, it was the beginning of this long-standing ministry of God that would grow exponentially as God progressively accomplished and made known His will by sending the Son, the first paraclete, the first office holder of God's ministerial work in the world, who would then depart and have that office expanded and fulfilled by the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, who indwells and empowers and helps and ministers among His church until one day at the new creation, God Himself comes, restores all things, and now dwells fully, Father, Son, and Spirit, with all His people. Because this is the another paraclete, we are guaranteed that God is present. I mean, it's interesting... That Tezar read from Romans 8 because I thought of that even thinking of this. This presence of the Spirit guarantees God's presence. And that nothing, neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from God and His love for us us. I hope you feel that this morning. God cannot be separated from us. He has made His presence known. And as we gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, and we worship an ascended risen King, we worship in the power 
And through the presence of the Spirit of God, who sits in that ministerial office, caring, shepherding, comforting, advocating, counseling, and helping us as we serve in His kingdom work and worship Him and give Him glory. Well, that's who the paraclete is. But what does the paraclete do? That's where this text gets more specific. In fact, if you look at verses 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, all five of those verses explain something about the ministry of the paraclete, what he does. As Jesus is preparing to leave, he announces the coming of the paraclete, this ministerial presence of God. And I wanted to summarize that for you, even though what I just shared with you is coming from actually about three chapters of the Gospel of John. But now I want to talk to you straight out of this text, because Jesus will explain what the paraclete's ministry will look like. The first can be found in verse 17. Verse 17 says this, Even the Spirit of truth, who will be with you forever, 16 ends, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. In this statement, Jesus is saying that the spirit paraclete gives the disciples access to God and access to the reality of God. That Jesus is this giving us the spirit who explains the full manifestation of the indwelling power of God in the spirit. This reality is denied to the world. They do not get this kind of access. They are not given free access to the Father through the Son in the ministering power of the Spirit. But you, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you share in this power. You experience the presence of God. And even as we were singing just moments ago, knowing that just in, in tomorrow, for me, I fly back to Chicago, Illinois, and I was thinking about a week from now, a week and 12 hours from now, since a little bit of a difference in time zone, that I will be standing in my church's congregation singing songs just like these and to be thinking that 12 hour across this globe, right? The beauty of the fact that even though in different times and 12 hours apart, that the children of God are worshiping in the power of the Spirit, sharing His presence through the work of Christ and because of the love of the Father. I, I, was, I was moved as I was listening to you singing and me singing alongside you, knowing that we equally share as brothers and sisters in Christ in that real experience of the Spirit's presence in our worship. Another truth is stated in verse 18. Jesus says this, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. By saying this, Jesus is saying that the spirit paraclete establishes a presence with God until the new creation. The Emmanuel presence of God doesn't stop at the incarnation and doesn't kind of end when Jesus will depart these disciples. It is magnified until the end. Unlike the world, God himself is continually and lovingly present with his children. Verse 19 gives another explanation of the ministry of the paraclete. 19 says this, Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But listen to this, But you will see me, 
Because I live, you also will live. I believe that this verse is saying that a third truth of the ministry of the paraclete, that the spirit paraclete shares the life of the Trinitarian God with the disciples. The life the disciples experience is rooted in this new eschatological life that only God can provide. It's a life from above. It's a life transformed through the work of Christ and in the power of the Spirit. The resurrection of Jesus does not merely guarantee that death is defeated. It means that life itself has been renewed as you share in God's life. Verse 20 gives us a fourth truth. Jesus says, In that day you will know that I am in the Father, in my Father, and you in me and I in you. By those words, Jesus is saying that the Spirit paraclete has a ministry that flows out of the resurrection. That's what he means by in that day. In my resurrection and ascension, you will know that the Spirit paraclete has a ministry that is empowered and begins at the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. The office of the paraclete intimately unites the disciples to God. And there is a new state of existence. All of these truths are explaining what it means to be a new covenant disciple of Jesus Christ. Living and worshiping through the work and person of Christ and in the power of the Spirit. The last thing is in verse 21. The last description of the ministry of the Spirit. And we'll spend a little bit more time on this because it's a theme that is brought up a lot. In fact, Jesus had opened this section with this this commandment to love him. And here he says in verse 21, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What I think what that verse is saying is this, that the spirit paraclete, will facilitate, will empower a love and obedience among and in the disciples. By beginning and ending this section with the call of love and obedience, the ministry of the Spirit Paraclete is showed, is said to be participating in the love and obedience you show to God the Father. The entire Christian life can be summarized and described as life in the Spirit. But it is symptomatically displayed by a response of love and obedience in the way that we live. See, I think that's what the next section is saying in verses 22 to 24. The second of these three sections. I think it's honing in on that. When this guy named Judas, who is not Judas Iscariot, which the narrative is quick to remind you, says these words in 22 to 24. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And then Jesus explains more the distinctive qualifications or the distinctive quality of those who have the Spirit of God and those who do not, or those who are believers in Jesus Christ and those who are simply of this world. Jesus answered them, verse 23, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. 
And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Judas's question probes the distinction between the disciples of Jesus and the world. The answer, what is the distinction? Two things, love and obedience. Notice it didn't say more money. It didn't say less infertility. It didn't say you'll never have cancer. It didn't say you wouldn't lose your job. It didn't say that you wouldn't be killed on a Sunday morning just a few hours from here. It didn't say any of that. It said simply you will love and you will obey. This is not a generic love and obedience being spoken about. It's a love and obedience that is grounded in Christ. And please hear this. That is empowered by the Spirit. Oh, it can be so tempting for Christians to distort the gospel and to live in such a way that we are trying, even after a point of conversion, we are so confusing. And that inward bent of sin can kind of tempt us, even compel us to try to earn our salvation through works and not through grace. A kind of obedience that is guilt-ridden or, or salvation-earning is not the kind of obedience and love that this text is talking about. This text is talking about a love and obedience that springs forth from the gospel. That's a response to the gospel. And even so, is a powerful work of the Spirit. The ministry of the Spirit that indwells is one that will work in and through the believer so that the Christian will look different. The book of 1 Peter hits on this and, and at least speaks about that different outward appearance and even our different identity and refers to Christians as aliens and strangers, sojourners in the world. We can get in real trouble when we begin to confuse the work of the Spirit and not understand that our works, our love, and our obedience born out of the Gospel is actually part of the work that the Spirit is doing. It is sad that when people think of the Holy Spirit, and this is common I can see and I've learned in your country as much as it is in mine, in Jakarta, in churches in Jakarta as much as churches in the Chicago area. Oftentimes when people think about the Holy Spirit, they think about the miraculous work of the Spirit. They think about speaking in tongues or gift of prophecy or miraculous healings of some sort. Part of me gets frustrated with that because it's such a narrow view of the power and miraculous works of the Spirit. One, one truth about this would simply be this. Is it not a miracle is it not an absolute miraculous work of the Spirit that any of us are freed from the shackles of sin and death and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Isn't that the most grand miracle feasible? As if speaking in tongues, whatever your understanding of all that is, and I'm not going near it, but as if speaking in tongues is even close to comparing to the resurrection from spiritual death to new life in God. Why is that not considered a miraculous work of the Spirit? One for which we hope for all of those we care for and love. 
My father is not a believer, nor my father's father. I am the first believer in the clink side of the family for many, many generations. I'd heard six generations ago there was one in my family line in Germany who immigrated to the United States who had a Catholic training and background, but, but I don't know if that's true. But I saw no fruit of that in my own family's life. And even in my younger years, there was, I had the influence of a believing mom and, and a believing grandmother who modeled for me the gospel, but I didn't necessarily at first embrace that and, and see that I followed through on kind of some rote practices that living with my grandfather or with my grandmother that we modeled. But I remember, I remember being 18 years old. And I remember it being a Saturday evening. And I hadn't been to church in some time. And I remember feeling just this overwhelming sense of craving God. I can't explain it much more than that. I just craved God. And I looked at my own life and I saw my sin and I wept and I wept. And I was in college and my roommate in the room was not in the room. And I literally remember putting my head in the pillow and weeping and weeping. Because for reasons that I couldn't explain then, but see now as that inward working of the Spirit. God's Spirit was creating in me a love for God. He was in working in me and creating a love and a commitment to obey His commands that would carry forth to this day. That is not because I was a moral person any more than my father or my grandfather or my great-grandfather, all of whom I've know, I know and have met. I can't speak about the others. But I am no different than them. What is different is God and the power and ministry of His Spirit that worked in me by grace through faith, for which I am so thankful. Why do we not see that and think of that as the everyday, moment-by-moment working of the Spirit? That, That our obedience springs from not just moralistic tendencies of a distortion of the gospel, but our obedience and that compulsion to obey our Lord as King and Savior is springing from that spirit in us that craves for us to know the fullness of life in God. That our love, described by Jesus as a love for God and a love for one another, is is motored and engined by the Spirit of God in us who wants us to taste the fullness of God's goodness and glory and and breaks our hearts and softens them for those around us. Just in this project on the 26th that I just heard advertised, when you go to an orphanage, members of the church go to an orphanage for four hours because they're your neighbors. And the Spirit of God is motivating you from the inside out to love them. And so you go and you love And it's not because you're a philanthropist, that you just love people. It's not that you're a good moral person. You are this alien and stranger through whom God has worked. And the ministering office of the paraclete has so empoweringly present himself among you and in you that you begin to obey in love in ways that make you look so different from the world. And it's not motivated by selfish gain or honor for yourself. 
It's motivated because your heart is broken for people to whom you want to show love and mercy. The last thing, verses 25 through 31. Not only is the paraclete going to do this unique power and presence ministry in and among us and in the world, not only is love and obedience proof of the paraclete's ministry in the life of the Christian, but third and finally, the paraclete brings biblical shalom, biblical peace, the peace of God through Christ and in the Spirit. Let's look at the beginning of, the, of this last section of our text. Jesus says he, he spoke those while he was still with us. But the paraclete, that's, again, I'm switching that out for helper, verse 26. But the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. After answering Judas's question, Jesus makes a final statement here regarding his departure in the presence of the Spirit. The departure of Jesus, he is saying, is not a transition from the ministry of the Spirit to the, from the ministry of Jesus to the ministry of the Spirit. For the paraclete, this office of the Trinitarian God, now involves both the, both the Son and the Spirit. Notice even how verse 25 was speaking to these things. Whom the Father will send in my name. How the Father, this larger mission of God, had planned this. And in my name suggested it's Christ's character and His continuing work. But then Jesus adds this comment about peace. The Hebrew word for that, the sense in the Old Testament is shalom. And in the Old Testament, and in the Bible, peace is not just not having war between two parties. Peace is more than something external. It includes what shalom means is something like a tranquility and a confidence and a trust and a safety inwardly and outwardly. By participation, the believer of the believer in the life of the Trinitarian God, through the ministry of the Spirit Paraclete, Jesus offers biblical shalom. Not a feeling, not a circumstance, not all problems solved, but a share in the power and the life of God. A uniting of the creature to the Creator through Christ and by the Spirit that gives a peace that passes all understanding. Notice how even by the end of the text, the resurrected, ascended Christ declares He rules over all things, including Satan, verse 30, and the world, verse 31, and that we, the church, share in that victory. Again, I feel like that Romans 8 text that was read earlier in the liturgy fits so well with this truth. I've seen that peace displayed I've experienced that kind of peace. And I've seen the ministry of that kind of a peace in crisis. 
We had close friends, the Dixon family. When we lived in California, they were part of our church. Todd helped lead our, our, the, our, our worship services on Sunday morning, very gifted musician. Their youngest child was born with a severe heart condition. In fact, not only was her heart defective uh, to such a serious degree that they didn't think she was even going to live past a month, but several of her organs were reversed and turned around. She had major medical problems. She had several surgeries before the age of two. And at one, at one point in one of the surgeries, uh, she actually lost oxygen for close to a minute, which caused severe brain damage. She was always functioning, even her, her, her life, which only lasted 13 years. She was always only functioning as if she were a toddler because of developmental difficulties. Their life was in and out of hospitals. They were at UCLA Ronald Reagan Hospital right in Los Angeles, a very popular hospital with, with heart and medical specialists. And there's a story of a doctor, a doctor who hadn't been in church some time but grew up in a Presbyterian church in Pasadena, California. He was minister. He, he, he had just started his, his his medical practice and started working with this family. And he arrives up on the floor and he's just going room to room visiting these families. Now you got to remember the floor he worked on was the young children floor. So these were young children who were going through major life difficulties. He said, and he shared this at Kaylee's funeral, the daughter who died just a few years ago. This doctor shared that the divorce rate of people with children of that kind of ailment is something like 90%. Like when your children are suffering, families are ripped apart. Alcohol, physical abuse, all of that just comes to fruition because life is so chaotic. Because when you've got little babies who are sick, everything gets turned upside down. So the doctor shows up on this floor and he's been engaging with these people. And then he meets the Dixon family. And he walks up to the door and he grabs a file before he walks in. And he stops and he hears singing. And they're singing songs. See, they were Christians. And this, the mom with this beautiful voice and the dad himself was a musician and an older brother who was five years older than his sister. And the older brother was about seven or eight and the sister was about two or three, little Kaylee. And he, he's listening and he stands there for two or three minutes and he hears them singing hymns. Amazing grace. And he's remembering that from when he used to go to his Presbyterian church in Pasadena as, as a boy. He's listening to them sing and he just couldn't believe. He opened the door and they greeted him lovingly. They, 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 there was peace. There was joy. The husband and wife were holding hands, which he hadn't seen on that floor forever. And he saw this sick little two- or three-year-old girl. He was so blown away, he walked away and, and, and just noted to himself, that is strange. Later in the week, he came back to visit them, and the news wasn't very good, and he sat them down, and he shared with them that he didn't think Katie was going to make it to her fourth birthday. And the family, like any of us, wept. They embraced one another. They cried. They prayed. But there, there, was, a, there was a hope. There was, there was something different that he could palpably see. Later that night, he went in to check on them. And he walked in and he saw an eight-year-old brother laying in the bed next to his sister. 
and he was holding her hand. And this little brother was singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And see, the sister couldn't sleep unless the brother sang to her. And he stands there and he just he loses it. He grabs the file and he walks out the door and he walks down to some staff medical lounge and he walks in and he throws the clipboard on the table and he goes, I, did, I can't, what is going on in room 205? He said that out loud. And there was a nurse sitting right there. And she said, grab a cup of coffee, doctor. Have a seat. And the nurse began to share with the doctor the gospel of Jesus Christ. The nurse was a believer. And she heard these words, and he heard these words, and he was just so shaken. He didn't know, and he finished at 5 o'clock, and he got into his car. He drove to Pasadena, which is a good 45 min minutes without traffic in L.A., and he shows up, and at some point, his pastor was just walking out the door of this Presbyterian church, and he said, Pastor, we got to talk. And he goes in, and he meets with the pastor, and he begins a journey, a conversation that ultimately led him to faith in Christ. Fast forward about 10 years. Kaylee's 13 years old. It's her last days. There would be a funeral in about two months from this event. A new nurse started on the floor, and overwhelmed by what she sees on this floor. She walks into the Dixon room and she knows the situation is dire. She sees how sickly this 13-year-old girl is. And when she comes back later, it's time for her to go to sleep. And what does she see? She sees an 18-year-old brother jump into the bed with his sister and he begins to sing a Christian hymn. He's singing, Be Thou My Vision, by memory. He's singing, Be Thou My Vision, by memory. And the mom and dad, having a hard time singing, but slowly joining in. And the three of them are singing songs. And the nurse watches this very uncomfortable, having a hard time breathing, little girl, 13-year-old girl, slowly relax her body and fall asleep. She gets up, she's beside herself. She walks out of the room. She goes into that same lounge. She says, what is going on in whatever room number it was then? There's a doctor sitting at the table. Guess what doctor it was? He says, grab a cup of coffee. Come have a seat. I need to tell you about something. See, in all those other rooms, death was overtaking life. But in that family, because of Jesus Christ and because of the power of the Spirit, life had already overtaken death. When Kaylee went home to be with the Lord two months after that. And that family still, as you could imagine, still struggles with the loss of a sister and a little girl. And our church family mourned heavily for that loss. But there was a difference. Death is not the end. And there was a real peace, a palpable peace. It wasn't just church family that could see that. It was doctors. It was nurses. It was people to say, what's going on in room 205? It's not a what. It's a who. It's the Spirit of Christ ministering in the office of the paraclete who gives a peace, a shalom that passes all understanding.
See, this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. No, not just these few. This is what he's telling his church, you and me. On a day when some of our brothers and sisters, as I understand it, died with bombings in their churches, that we can have a peace and a confidence in the risen and ascended King and the ministry of His Spirit that no one else has. That is the power of the Spirit. It's the ministry of the Spirit among us. May we show proof of the Spirit as we love and obey Christ through the power of the Spirit's ministry. And may we reflect that peace that the Spirit Himself brings as Jesus Christ promised in this text. Pray with me. Father, thank You for Your goodness to us through Jesus Christ. Thank You for the beauty of the Gospel and how it's not just a cool story. It's not just a theological truth. It is the power over life and death. Thank You for the ministry of the Spirit. Father, I thank You for this church. Thank You for Covenant City Church. Thank You for the privilege and honor I had of ministering with them and to them the last week. I pray that you help them faithfully present the gospel. There would be a growth of those who love Christ, who faithfully obey, and who have a peace that is motivated by your Spirit. Father, I pray that you would help this church minister to the city of Jakarta. I pray you'd give them wisdom, you'd raise up leaders, you would provide new people who need to know your truth, and you would empower them by the same spirit that was spoken to and received by the first disciples 2,000 years ago. Father, we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.